Hello and welcome to the Killer Kind Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. And I'm not going to drag my feet here. You've seen the title, so you know that today I am going to be covering the Idaho murders. I can't wait for the messages I'm going to get on this one because I've had so many people asking me to cover this since it happened last year. But as you guys know, I don't typically cover the high profile cases, usually because there is just massive amounts of information and it's hard to go through number one. But with a case like this, when the murders took place, there were so many rumors out there, especially in the world of TikTok. This case was all over that app. And honestly, there was just so much misinformation out there as well. And I really don't like to give you guys a case unless we have all the facts or as much evidence as possible, which isn't always possible, but you get what I'm saying. Plus the delay and wanting to cover a case like this was largely because this one's tough. Doing the research for this case, I have cried watching the family and friends crying over their loved ones. It's not an easy case to cover here. None of the cases I cover are, but this one in particular was especially tough because of what these young college students went through and because they were so young and had so much life ahead of them. But with that all said, let's just go into it. Let's dive in to the horrific Idaho murders. Today's case takes place back in November 2022 at the University of Idaho in Moscow. And we're talking about a group of friends who were literally living the college dream. And before we get into it, let's talk about who these young college students were Let's start with the three roommates. There were three beautiful girls that lived in an off-campus house on King's Road, and they rented the house together. There are two additional roommates that I will mention, but I won't be giving their names here today. I want to respect their privacy as much as possible. It sounds like they've tried to hide their names um, in several different like interviews and things like that. So I'm not going to mention it here, but... Obviously, I do have to mention the other two roommates because they're important to the story. But again, I won't mention their names. So let's get into it and find out who the other young women were. Starting off with Madison Mogan. Maddie, as everyone knew her, was born on May 25th, 2001. She grew up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. She was easygoing, loving, loved to dance, great at making the best of every situation, according to her boyfriend, Jake. During her time in college, she was studying marketing, and she worked at the Mad Greek Restaurant, and she used her marketing skills to run their social media. She was a member of the Pi Beta Phi sorority. She met her boyfriend, Jake Schweiger, her freshman year, and they dated throughout college. Jake said that Maddie was his best friend. She was the first person he would talk to in the morning and the last person he would talk to at night. He said she was so good at spreading love to those around her. She was just beautiful inside and out. Maddie was a 21-year-old senior at the time of the murders, and she had so much going for her. They all did. 
Maddie, just like her roommates, knew how to have fun. They were all funny and they made fun TikToks together. Plus, they were all extremely close, which leads us to her childhood friend and roommate, Kaylee Gonzalez. Maddie's dad said that the two were inseparable from the sixth grade on, and they were a force to be reckoned with. The two stuck together through everything that they faced. Kaylee's mom said that they were practically sisters, and Maddie was just as much her child as Kaylee was. A former teacher for both girls said when she thought about the dynamic duo, she instantly thinks about their vibrant smiles and their boisterous laughs. So Kaylee Gonzalez was born on June 8th, 2001. Kaylee grew up in Rathdrum, Idaho, about 20 minutes from Maddie, but they both attended Lake City High School. Kaylee was the middle child in her big family of five siblings. She had a heart for adventure, and she seemed to be full of spunk. She was known to play pranks on her family, which is funny. Her sister Olivia said that she was tough yet fair, and she didn't hold back in love, fights, or in life in general. That same former teacher I mentioned earlier said that she knew Kaylee was ready to take the world by storm. She said that she was ready to leave her mark. Kaylee was a 21-year-old senior, just like Maddie at the time, and she was in the Alpha Phi sorority. She was studying to be an elementary school teacher, which based on what I've learned about who Kaylee was, a teacher would have been so fitting for her. She would have been a great teacher. She was loving. She had a motherly personality to her, which showed through the love of her fur baby, Murphy, who was this adorable mini golden doodle that she shared with her ex-boyfriend, Jack, who lived with her and her roommates at that off-campus house. Now let's talk about the third roommate, Zanna Kernodal. Just like Maddie and Kaylee, she was beautiful. She was a light in so many people's lives. Her sister Jasmine said that she understood the gift of life more than anyone she had ever known. Zanna Carnodal was born on July 5th, 2002. She was originally from Avondale, Arizona, but her family later moved to Post Falls, Idaho. She played volleyball, soccer, and ran track in high school. And at the time of graduation, she decorated her cap and it read, For the lives that I will change which was so fitting for her. She clearly made a mark on everyone that she met. And when she went to the University of Idaho, she pledged for the Pi Beta Phi sorority, and she majored in marketing, just like Maddie. Zanna was just a 21-year-old junior at the time of her death. She, too, was working at the Mad Greek restaurant, and just like her roommate, she, too, had a college boyfriend who she loved very much. Ethan Chapin was her first boyfriend. According to her sister Jasmine, they were always so happy. The way she would talk and smile about him was something she had never seen her do before. She said Zanna truly loved Ethan and she knew that he had so much love for her as well. They had really had something special. And that brings us to our fourth victim of our story today, Ethan Chapin. Ethan was born on October 28, 2002. He grew up in Conway, Washington, which is about a five and a half hour drive from the university. Ethan had a brother and sister who were all actually triplets. I can't even begin to imagine how hard his 
death must be on them. We always hear how much like of a strong bond twins or in this case triplets have. And honestly, my heart just hurts for them and for all the siblings of the victims in this case today. Ethan's parents said that he was the best. He was the comedian of the family and he was a lover of country music and sports. He was described as full of joy. After graduating high school, he went to the University of Idaho along with both of his other siblings, Maisie and Hunter. Ethan was a member of the Sigma Chi fraternity and was a 20-year-old freshman at the time of his death. He was majoring in recreation, sport, and tourism management. He was remembered as a talented athlete, a loving son and brother, and a shining light. Ethan's parents said they actually visited Ethan and his siblings at the university the week before the murders for Parents Weekend, which I believe most, if not all, of the victims' parents visited that weekend, which is somewhat a positive in this case, I would consider. His mom said that when they were leaving Moscow, she and his dad literally turned to each other and said that we have done it as parents. She said they felt like they had raised three incredible humans. A friend of Ethan's said that he was one of the few people in this world that was 100% pure. He was honest and just a great person. His parents said if everybody was like Ethan Chapin, the world would be at a better place. Just like the other victims in this case, it sounds like each of them were a light. They brought joy to so many lives. Which just makes this case so much harder to go through. But with that said, let's go ahead and dive into what really happened. So the murders took place during the early morning hours on Sunday, November 13th, 2022. But everything really starts on that Saturday before, on the 12th. So that Saturday was the last home game for the University of Idaho football team. And if anybody has been to a college campus on game day, you know it's a busy day. (laughs) And spirits are high. Especially if you're in a sorority or fraternity, which we know our victims were. So I'm sure it was busy for all of them as a group of friends. It was On this day that Kaylee posted a now popular or famous picture of her and her roommates. It was a picture of all five roommates plus Ethan. So everyone that lived in that house together, everyone that was in that house that night, the caption read one lucky girl to be surrounded by these people every day. And this is likely the first picture that pops up when you search this case because it includes everyone and it was posted within hours of their death it's a little chilling honestly but anyway so on this particular day the group of friends started their day at the house that they shared which as i mentioned earlier was an off-campus home that they all rented however it was a house in the neighborhood that people called fratlantis it was right by all of the fraternity and sorority houses for the university which gave them easy access to all the social events that they had all they all had to attend and on this day it was no different the football game that day was at around 4 p.m. from what i can tell so the group hung out and went to tailgate for the game i couldn't find confirmation on whether or not they all attended the game, but either way, after the game was over, they all sort of split up and did their own thing for a while. 
So at around 9 p.m., Zana and Ethan went to his fraternity, the Sigma Chi house. The house the roommates shared was just a four-minute walk from that fraternity house, just to give you an idea. Like I said, they got, they got to the fraternity house about 9, and witnesses say they stayed at the house until about 1.45 a.m. And it was at that point that they decided to walk back to Zana's house at 11.22 King Road. Kaylee and Maddie spent their night together. After the game, they went to a bar called the Corner Club. It was about a mile and a half from the house. They left the bar at about 1.30 a.m., but 10 minutes later, they were seen at a local food truck called the Grub Truck. And this was a huge part of the investigation and a big part of the rumors that surrounded this case from the beginning because they actually have a video camera on the outside of their truck that they use to live stream on Twitch. And in that video from that night, we can see Kaylee and Maddie walk up to the truck, order their food, and after they get their food, they can be seen walking off camera out of view, seemingly headed home. Now, As I mentioned, this video caused a lot of rumors to circulate, a lot of speculation. Keep in mind, there wasn't much information when these murders first happened. The public didn't know who could have done it, and they had a killer on the loose. So when this footage was released, everyone tried to pick it apart. And honestly, I was one of them. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I wasn't. I'm sure a lot of us were. We were trying to solve this thing on our own, right? And Towards the end of the video, you can see a guy wearing a hood that is seen talking to someone who points at Kaylee and Maddie's direction, kind of points at them walking away. And a minute later, he is seen walking in their direction, again, off camera. So this poor guy was probably attacked by the media, and we'll get into some of the suspects here, but he was on that list for sure. I'll go ahead and say, though, he was questioned by police and cleared as a suspect. Now, the girls are seen walking away. They were picked up by, quote, a third party, which, again, was another rumor that went around. And again, like speculation that, oh, this guy was involved. But and for a while, nobody knew who the third party was. And I'm honestly not even sure if the identity of the driver has been confirmed by police. But I found an interview that the driver did with the New York Post. Supposedly, he was a cab driver who drove the girls home that night. He said they were excited to get home and chow down on some mac and cheese. He remembers that part very vividly. But he said that their death still weighs very heavy. On him. He said that my job is to get people home safely, yet that didn't help that night. And I really do. I feel bad for this guy because just like the guy in the hoodie at the food truck, he was probably ridiculed and questioned about the students' murders, and which makes sense, especially since he was likely the last known person to see the college students. But he too was cleared as a suspect by police. So the cab driver drops Kaylee and Maddie off at the house at 1.56 a.m. And they were last, they were the last ones to arrive home that night. At this point, all five roommates plus Ethan are all at the house on King Road. Now, at this point, I think we need to get into the layout of the home a little bit. And then we'll get into the timeline of the murders and the events that followed. So I have put a link 
in the show notes of someone who is going through a detail layout of the home and where everyone was sleeping because it's kind of a weird layout as far as a house goes. So bear with me as I try to explain it to you guys. But this house consisted of three levels. There were two bedrooms on the lower level. Initially, I thought that both of the two surviving roommates were sleeping on that lower level at the time of the murders, but that's not correct. However, I do believe one of the surviving roommates was initially assigned to that second bedroom on the lower level, but a vacant room kind of opened up on the second floor that was much bigger than that one. And if you watch the video I have linked, the guy shows how small that second bedroom on the first level was. And it explains how he's been, or excuse me, how he's seen social media posts showing one of the surviving roommates inside that room on the second level before the murder. So the assumption is that one of the surviving roommates was on the first level by herself. Then on the second level, you have the second surviving roommate on one side of the second level. And then Zana's room was on the opposite side, which we know Ethan was staying in the room with Zana that night. Now we move on to the third floor and that leaves Maddie and Kaylee. And there are two more bedrooms on this third level. However, Kaylee and Maddie slept in the same room that night. Now, let me pause and say, I learned something new when I started researching this case. And maybe some of you guys knew, but I didn't realize. So Kaylee had actually already moved out of that house. She was just in town visiting for the weekend. She came back as for like one final trip. I'm sure that fact just makes it so much harder for her friends and family. Like she wasn't even supposed to be there, right? It's very chilling. But apparently she was set to graduate early in December and had already started the process of leaving. She had moved her stuff back home and had accepted a tech job in Austin, Texas, starting in January. So Kaylee and Maddie were basically glued at the hip this trip. So it's not surprising that they were staying in the same room that night. So let's get into what happened. First things first, we know that most of the people in the house were up until about 4 a.m. It's unclear if they were out kind of in the common areas of the home or what, but based on phone records, we know that everything was fine until shortly after 4 a.m. So between 2.26 a.m. and 2.52 a.m., Kaylee calls her ex-boyfriend Jack around 10 times. The two had dated for many years and had recently broken up. Now, Jack was yet another victim of that media scrutiny. Jack was under a huge suspicion among a lot of people following this case. And for a while, the theory was that the murders were taking place at this time and Kaylee was calling for help. So there's two theories that one, Jack was involved or this the murders were taking place and he was she was calling to get his attention and get some help but obviously that has since been disproven it's unknown though why she tried calling him so many times but look it's late the two had just broken up there's no telling right we've all called our exes late at night like this especially if we've been drinking i couldn't find anything that took place from 252 up until 4 a.m. So from the end of that phone call to Jack to the 4 a.m. mark. However, we know that at least 
a couple of the roommates were still awake because Xana received a DoorDash order at 4 a.m. And according to her phone records, she was active on TikTok at 4, 12 a.m. So she likely ordered DoorDash and was eating it while scrolling through TikTok. That's what I picture at least. But what is crazy is we know that the murders took place sometime around 4 30 or so. So we at least know that Xana was awake at the time. Now, sometime around this 4 a.m. time, the surviving roommate on the second level says she wakes up and hears what she says sounds like Kaylee playing with her dog upstairs. She said it sounded like some wrestling going on upstairs. And it was at this time, too, that she heard who she thought was Kaylee even though it sounded a little muffled, say something like, someone's here. There has been speculation that this could have been Xana's voice and not Kaylee's. I'm sure that's because there's no evidence that showed Kaylee was even awake at this time, but we're pretty positive that Xana was. So this roommate hears a female voice say, someone's here. And supposedly she looks out her bedroom window and doesn't see anyone. So she goes to look out her bedroom door and again, doesn't see anything. Now, let me explain something real quick. So each of the three levels has a door that leads to the exterior of the home. The first level seems to be where the parking and the main entrance was. Then there's an outdoor patio on the second level with a sliding glass door leading out. And That's kind of considered the main level of the home, which is where the living room is and the kitchen is, along with the two bedrooms. And then the third level has a porch with stairs that leads down to the patio area. I hope all that makes sense. So the roommate looks outside her door, doesn't see anything, so she closes the door and goes back to bed. This same roommate says a few minutes later, though, that she hears what she believes is someone crying coming from Xana's room. Then she said she hears an unknown male voice say, it's okay, I'm going to help you. She said it was around this time that Kelly's dog starts barking and she continues to hear crying. So she opens her bedroom door again sometime around 415 to 417. I know that's oddly specific and I'll explain that a little later, but this time when she opens the door, she sees a man that she describes as about five foot, 10 inches tall, or maybe a little taller, not very, not very muscular, but athletically built. She said he's wearing black clothing and a mask covering his mouth and nose. She can only see what she describes as bushy eyebrows, which becomes important later. She said she didn't recognize him at all, and in that moment, she freezes. She's likely frozen in fear, and he's seemingly walking towards her, but it's like he didn't really see her because she said that he turns towards the backsliding door and walks out. And that's when she closes her door and locks it. Now, from what I understand, this roommate doesn't really do anything. I haven't found anything saying she texted or tried calling the other roommates in the house to check on them or anything like that. But that doesn't mean that she didn't. So please keep that in mind. And y'all, both the surviving roommates 
got lots of heat for their role in this case. And I'm sure some of you listening that followed this case from the beginning, myself included, especially when a lot of false information was out there, thought that these girls could have done more, should have done more, were either maybe involved somehow. I, I mean, I could go on. There was a lot of speculation there. But guys, none of us have been in a situation like that. I'm sure. And how many times have we listened to true crime stories and listened to witnesses tell their side? Their minds don't go instantly to murder or death, right? How many times have people said they found a a dead body and they say they thought it was a mannequin? Our brains aren't programmed to go straight to the unthinkable. So I'm sure this roommate that saw the masked man didn't think the absolute worst. Definitely didn't think some of her closest friends were dying. You have to think that she likely sat in her room talking herself down. Thinking it's fine. That was probably just a guy over for one of the girls or something like that. And another thing to note here is this was known as a party house. If you guys go to any of the roommates' social media, you can see they had parties here all the time. They had recently had a Halloween party. And apparently, and unfortunately, there was a keypad you could use to gain access into the home. So there were several people who knew how to get into that house and knew that passcode. And one of those people could have been that masked man, maybe just there to hang out with someone or looking for a party. And I also read somewhere that that same roommate was quoted as saying she thought some of the rustling upstairs, the male voice and all of that, she thought maybe she had mistaken for a small party going on upstairs and that the guy she saw leaving was probably just someone leaving the party. And keep in mind, people still wear masks because of COVID. So masks aren't as big of a red flag as they likely used to be. But I don't want to dwell on what the surviving roommates did or didn't do too much. I just want to say, don't hate on them, please, because we don't know what we would do in a situation like this. With that said, it wasn't until later that morning at around 11 a.m. that one of the surviving roommates called a couple of friends in a panic, saying one of the victims on the second level was passed out and she couldn't wake them up. I'm not sure if it was ever confirmed which victim they're referring to, but if it was the second level, it had to have either been Ethan or Zana. Now, it's hard to say how they could have just assumed there were they were passed out and not seen any blood indicating something more sinister, especially if it was Ethan or Zana, because if you see one of them, you're likely going to see the other. Now, that's not to say that they even went in to fully check on Xana or Ethan. Like maybe she just peeked their, you know, peeked her head in and saw Xana on the floor and when they called out to her, she didn't answer. And they just assumed maybe she passed out. But when the friends got there, they were able to really assess the situation and they were able to look a little closer and realize that it was time to call 911. But again, I don't want to dwell on this because nobody is at fault here for what they did or didn't do, except for the killer. So it wasn't until 11.58 a.m. that the Moscow Police Department received a 911 call from someone at the home reporting an unconscious person. 
But when police arrived, what they saw proved to be way more than what anyone expected. Officers were brought in through the first level of the home and led up to this second level into the room of Zana Kernodal. Zana's lifeless body was found on the floor next to the bed, and Ethan was found still in bed. After realizing that two people in the house had been murdered, they knew they needed to check on everyone who lived in the house. At this point, they identify the two surviving roommates, so then they're able to make their way up to the third level, and that is where they find Maddie Mogan and Kaylee Gonzalez. All four victims appeared to have been brutally attacked and stabbed to death. Kaylee's dog, Murphy, was found alive in the vacant room on the third floor, which is where likely Kaylee's room was before she moved out. At 1 p.m. that afternoon, the University of Idaho issued a mass text alert to all students that said, quote, Vandal alert. Moscow PD investigating a homicide on King Road near campus. Suspect is not known at this time. Stay away from the area and shelter in place. How terrifying to get that text, right? But at 345, they issued a statement on Facebook that said, Investigation continues. Suspect unknown. MPD does not believe there is an active threat. Shelter in place is lifted. Remain vigilant. Can you imagine the panic that has set in across campus since that initial threat, especially King Road being widely populated by college students? I'm sure everyone is texting their friends that live on that road, including our four victims. Now, at 4 p.m. that day, there was a peace officer brought to the house to act as crime scene security. And there was an affidavit that was unsealed back on January 5th of this year that detailed his time at the house and kind of into the investigation that ultimately leads to the suspect. Fun fact here, this affidavit was released the same day our suspect made his first court appearance. So it really helped answer a lot of questions that people had up until that point. So I'll walk you guys through this affidavit for that reason. It honestly just answers a lot of questions and paints a pretty good picture. I wish every case had something like this to read through because it would make the timeline of the investigation so much easier to share with you guys. But I digress. So peace officer Brett Payne was employed by the Moscow Police Department and brought in. In the affidavit, it states that he was being assisted by members of the Idaho State Police and agents of the FBI. Officer Payne said that he arrived at the home on King Road at approximately 4 p.m. on November 13, 2022. He was there to assist with the crime scene security, but also processing of the crime scene as well. It states that Officer Smith with the Moscow PD greeted him when he got there as he was one of the initial officers at the scene. Officer Smith walked Officer Payne through the scene. I won't go through this detail too much because most of it I've kind of already described to you where each of the victims were found. Now, he does say first and foremost, there was no sign of forced entry, which is a little troubling. We're not sure how the attacker gained access 
access into the home unless it was like an unlocked door or could it have been someone who knew that security code to get in. Then the affidavit describes each of the victims and how they appeared deceased with wounds caused by an edged weapon. In an autopsy report completed later, Ethan Chapin had wounds described as sharp force injuries. Not sure what the difference would be here, but his wounds were described differently than the others, even though it sounds very similar. Also, Xana had defensive wounds, but the other victims did not, which means, which makes sense because it's believed she was one of the only ones awake at the time. Another thing to note here was that when the officers went into the room that Kaylee and Maddie were in, they found the same type of wounds, but notice what appeared to be a tan leather knife sheath laying on the bed next to Maddie's right side. And I think this is why investigators felt and many people felt that either Kaylee or Maddie were the intended target, but we may never know who was the target or why this horrific event even took place. Now, the sheath was later processed and appeared to have KA-BAR and the letters USMC along with the United States Marine Corps Eagle Globe and Anchor insignia stamped on the outside. The Idaho State Lab later located a single source of male DNA left on the bottom snap of that sheath, according to this affidavit. It goes on to say that numerous interviews were conducted by Moscow PD, Idaho State Detectives, and the FBI. It also explains everything in detail from the day before up until the time of the murders, which is super nice to have. And again, like I've already gone over that part with you guys. However, it also details more of the exact times of the murder. It says basically in combination of the surviving roommate statements to law enforcement, reviews of forensic downloads of records from both the surviving roommates' phones, and a video of a suspect as described below, which that's just what it says, but we'll get into it. It says, this leads investigators to believe the homicides occurred between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m., which just goes to show just how fast everything took place because we know Zana was alive at 4 a.m. and then at 4 12 a.m. It's a little chilling to know what's going on there. But so before we get into the days after the investigation, I want to go through this affidavit a little more and list some pieces of evidence found at the scene. So we've got the most obvious one being the knife sheath. Then investigators found a latent shoe print that was located by the second processing of the crime scene by the Idaho State Forensic Team. Sounds like they used some sort of test that causes protein found in blood to turn blue. So it wasn't an obvious footprint. And after doing that test, the shoe print was similar to the pattern of a Vans type shoe sole. This print was found just outside the door of the surviving roommate on the second floor, the one who saw the masked man. Now, it wasn't until Monday, November the 14th, that the Moscow police issued a statement identifying the four homicide victims. 
They said details were limited and no one was in custody. They also added that they did not believe there is an ongoing community risk based on information gathered during the initial investigation. However, the university president, Scott Green, said that although the police don't believe there's a threat to the community, they are asking that their employees be sympathetic or empathetic, flexible, and to work with their students who wish to return home to be with their families. On Wednesday, November the 16th, Police Chief James Fry held a news conference for the first time. And he was and he basically retracted their initial statement saying that they cannot say that there's no threat to the community. He said to stay vigilant and report any suspicious activity and to be aware of your surroundings at all times. He also mentioned that there were two surviving roommates at the home that were unharmed and said that they are not just fo- focusing on the two survivors. They're focusing on anyone and everyone close to the victims. And over the next week, the Moscow PD honestly might have said too much. They really caused confusion instead of clarity every time they spoke to the media or the public. First of all, they said this was undoubtedly a targeted attack. Yet soon after that, they said detectives couldn't say for sure it was targeted towards someone specific in the home or if it was just the household in general. They also mentioned that they were looking into theories that Kaylee had a stalker And I remember that being a huge thing on TikTok. But then a few days later, this was, um, they said that this was not a pattern of stalking and said there was no evidence to suggest that. So everything is just sort of getting confusing. Every time the Moscow Police Department says something, it's a new theory that everyone runs with. And not only that, we have four families that are devastated and frustrated. If you follow this case at all, you saw a lot of conversation between the families. A lot of the the dads, especially speaking out about their frustration of the lack of information that they had from police. It honestly sounded like they were getting information when the public did, like when we did, which is just so wrong and not fair at all to those poor families. But back to the investigation. So according to, again, this affidavit, I'm going to keep referencing it because it's the most factual information we have. So according to Officer Payne, as part of the investigation, they conducted what's called a video canvas in the area of the home. He said this was done to obtain any footage from the early morning hours in an effort to locate a suspect or suspect vehicle traveling to or leaving the King Road area. He said, during the video canvas, they collected numerous surveillance videos in the area from both residential and businesses. He said, pretty quickly, they identified a white Hyundai Elantra that was seen traveling towards the home at around 326 a.m. and then could be seen multiple times in this area between 329 a.m. and ending at 420 a.m. The car was seen passing the house three different times, and it was seen entering the area a fourth time at 4.04 a.m. That same car apparently made a failed attempt to park or turn around in front of the home. The Elantra was seen leaving the area at approximately 4.20 a.m. at a high rate of speed. According to this video footage and sort of following this white car, they realized it was headed 
towards Washington State University, which was about 10 miles from the University of Idaho. Investigators were able to reach out to Washington State and gain access to video footage that showed that same white sedan leaving the area at 2.44 a.m. Then, at around 5.25, the car was seen by five different cameras in the Pullman, Washington area on the Washington State campus. On November 25th, the Moscow Police Department asked surrounding law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout for a white Hyundai Elantra that was missing a front license plate. On the 29th, a Washington State Police Officer, Daniel Tiango, spotted a 2015 Elantra with a Pennsylvania tag and decided to look up the license plate number. And when he did, he found that it was registered to a Brian Koberger living in Pullman, Washington. A separate officer later that night at 12.58 a.m. spotted the white Elantra sitting in a parking lot of an apartment complex. He, too, looked up the license plate and saw it was registered to Brian Koberger, and he decided to check out his driver's license information and photograph. He said that Koberger was a white male who was six foot tall, weighing 185 pounds. Most importantly, the driver's license photo shows that he had bushy eyebrows. So this Brian guy's physical description was consistent with the description of the male that the surviving roommate saw inside the home that night. So police are watching this white car, but it wasn't until Wednesday, December 7th, that they tell the public that they are looking for the owner of this specific 2015 white Hyundai Elantra. And by that Friday, the Idaho State Police stated they received over 6,000 tips related to the Elantra and are working through each one. But again, in the meantime, the Moscow PD is trying to figure out who Brian Koberger is and likely just trying to rule him out as a suspect. And long story short, they were able to get a cell phone number for Brian. Apparently, he had given it to an officer during a routine like traffic stop back in October, I believe. So, they pulled his cell phone records. And first things first, they wanted to confirm whether or not he was the one driving to King Road that night. And they could tell that Brian left his home sometime before 3 a.m. But that his phone was turned off between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. So they can see that he leaves his apartment in Pullman and at around 3 a.m. he turns his phone off and they lose his location until 5 a.m. when it is turned back on and he is headed back in the direction of his apartment in Pullman, Washington. So it doesn't place him at the crime scene, but it does show he was basically unaccounted for at the time of the murders. That said, they noticed something even more suspicious, in my opinion. Brian Koberger's phone showed he left his apartment a little later that morning, the morning of the murders, and it pinged on King Road or in that residential area at 9 a.m. that morning. I mean, what, four or five hours after the murders? More specifically, his phone pinged in that area from 9.12 a.m. to 9.21 a.m., putting him at the scene of the crime. 
I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. The killer always comes back to the scene of the crime. They want to stay close to the crime, almost always. So we shouldn't be surprised. And to give you an idea of how close he is to the Idaho student's house, he was back to his apartment at approximately 9.32 a.m. So it takes, what, 10 minutes barely to get back to his apartment. And again, going through this affidavit, we can see day by day almost what exactly is going on in the investigation. But what's frustrating is as the public, I remember thinking, what is going on? Like they're not doing anything, you know, like being so frustrated. And it sounded like it sounded like the family was too. But here we have a detailed list of what really went on. And that I know you don't want to compromise the investigation, but somebody should have told the family, you know, sorry. But anyways, I won't do all that. So when they were using the phone records, they were able to determine that the cell phone belonging to Brian had an address different from his apartment in Pullman. On December 23rd, 2022, they received new records from AT&T that listed an address in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. And upon further investigation, they were able to determine that this was Brian Koberger's parents' house. At that same time, investigators were able to determine, or excuse me, able to obtain records from July 23rd, 2022, when this new phone plan became active, up until the current time of the investigation, which was the end of December. Officer Payne said that he was looking to see if Brian had stalked any of the victims in this case prior to the murders and to see if he if he had any contact with any of the victims as well. And what he found, I hate to keep saying chilling, but was chilling. It literally gave me chills. Apparently, according to the phone records, Brian Koberger's phone was in the area of 1122 King Road, on at least 12 separate occasions prior to December, excuse me, November 13th. All but one of these times occurred in the late evening and early morning hours. And guys, they were able to track his every move anytime he went near the King Road area. So they were pretty certain at this point that Brian was the killer, but they needed DNA. They needed something that put him at the scene because again they have that unknown male dna from that knife sheath so on december 27th 2022 pennsylvania agents recovered trash from bryant's parents home in albrightsville that evidence was sent to the idaho state lab for testing on december 28th the idaho state lab reported that a dna profile from the trash and the dna profile from the sheath were similar and not to get into all the logistics and bore you guys, but basically the DNA from the trash was consistent with a biological father of the profile from the sheath. This is like that genealogy DNA. Like when the golden state killer was identified, I hate to go off on a tangent, but when the golden state killer was identified based on the 23 and me DNA that was sent in from a relative of his genealogy is changing the game. It's changing the way we solve cases and I'm here for it. And just like in this case, the DNA results meant that Brian Koberger was their guy. In the affidavit, Officer Payne said that they received the DNA results 
and then immediately requested an arrest warrant to be issued for Koberger. The warrant was issued on December 29th, and finally, after seven weeks, on December 30th, 2022, Brian Koberger was arrested at his parents' home in Pennsylvania, and he was charged with burglary and four counts of first-degree murder. There were some people that questioned why he went back to his parents' home in Pennsylvania. I remember that being a huge, like, oh, he, like, skipped town. But apparently his father drove down to WSU a few weeks after the murder, and the two drove back up to PA together. Many people speculated that his dad knew what happened or was kind of involved somehow. However, this ended up being Christmas break, so this was a pre-planned trip the two had made. It definitely looked a little suspicious, but with it being Christmas break, it made sense. But who even is Brian Koberger? Like, who is this guy? I don't want to shine any light on him, really, but it seemed to be like out of nowhere, right? Brian Koberger was a 28-year-old PhD student at Washington State University studying criminal justice and criminology. Yeah. Let that sink in. Now, Brian attended DeSales University in PA, where he received a bachelor's degree in psychology, of all things, and then his master's in criminal justice. Brian has been described as a quiet guy, but very intelligent. I picture a kind of person who is extremely smart to a fault, meaning he wasn't very good socially, kind of socially awkward, but was very book smart. When he was growing up, he was known to be a little more outgoing and funny, but apparently before he hit the legal drinking age, Brian began drinking heavily and also became addicted to drugs, more specifically heroin. So the friends he had growing up pretty much stopped hanging out with him after this. And at some point though, Brian did end up going to rehab and appeared to turn his life around. However, while in college, people that met Brian said he was not a fun guy. Like he had a cockiness about him that was very off-putting. He'd often make statements that he could go to any bar and get any girl he wanted, which might be a good insight as to why he targeted these gorgeous young girls. Maybe one of the girls like blew him off while at a bar one night. That could certainly be a motive for someone like this. And since Brian was arrested and his identity was made public, his master's thesis has since become public as well for the most chilling reason. With permission from the university, he posted on a subreddit reaching out to ex-cons. In the post, he said he was looking to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. In particular, he goes on to say that he seeks to understand the story behind their most recent criminal offense with an emphasis on their thoughts and feelings throughout the experience. He had these people answer questions like, what was the first move you made in order to accomplish your goal? After arriving, what steps did you take prior to locating the victim or target? Did you prepare for the crime before leaving your home? Please detail what you were thinking and feeling at this point. Are we kidding? This is disturbing. I also read that while at DeSales, he took a class fully dedicated to serial killers. 
Sounds like an interesting class. Maybe not for the same reasons as Brian. But I mean, this guy was literally studying how to be a murderer, how to murder someone. And you can find lots of information like that on Brian Koberger. But with all of the interactions people had with him and his time in college, none of it explains why he did what he did, specifically to these four Idaho students. There are suspicions that he interacted with both of the surviving roommates on their OnlyFans accounts, but that has definitely not been confirmed. I think people are kind of grasping at straws as to how he even knew anyone in the house, and none of it makes sense, y'all. None of it. And there's many more theories and speculations and rumors and all these things coming out that have been disproven or are not confirmed. So I'm not saying I have all the facts here. I'm sure there's there's more to it or I'm sure, you know, I could be reporting something wrong. But this is what we know. Brian Koberger killed four innocent, amazing people for seemingly no reason. There is never a reason to kill someone, but it came out of nowhere. He's 28 years old. These kids are 20 and 21. It makes no sense. Sadly, we don't have an answer quite yet, but the investigation is not over. Brian Koberger is waiting for his next court date, which is in June. I saw one report that said the court date is scheduled for June 26th of this year, to be specific. Either way, I will continue to follow this case very closely. And that is going to do it for me today on the Idaho student murders. Zana, Kaylee, Maddie, and Ethan were four amazing people that did not deserve to have their lives taken away so soon. Like I said, I will follow this case. I will follow the trial. That is for sure. I highly recommend you um, subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening or head over to my podcast Instagram page. I think it's killer.kind.pod or you can just search the killer kind. You should be able to find it there. I will post as many updates as I can, especially when things start to unfold. As always, I want to know your thoughts on today's case. Please head over to the Instagram or leave a review on today's episode wherever you can to let me know how you feel about this one. That is going to do it for me this week, guys. I'll be back here in two weeks. Until then, stay safe. Bye, guys.